You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Riedel and you're listening to the Theater Geeks Anonymous podcast. Welcome to Theater Geeks Anonymous. The podcast about Broadway flops, scandals, and new work. I'm your host, Ebony Vines. And I'm your host, Pamela Shandro. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Theater Geeks Anonymous podcast on the Broadway Podcast Network and all your favorite podcast listening apps. Thank you. Hey, geeks. Welcome to this special episode of Theater Geeks Anonymous. We're so excited for you to hear this interview with our guest about his new book, Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway. Michael Riedel has been the theater columnist for the New York Post since 1998. New York Magazine has called his column a must-read for the theater world. Some of you may know him from the PBS show Theater Talk, which he co-hosted with Susan Haskins for 25 years. Michael began his radio career as a regular on the Imus in the Morning show in 2011, and in 2017, WOR, New York's oldest and highest rated station, asked him to co-host its morning show with well-known sportscaster Len Berman. The Len Berman and Michael Riedel in the Morning show is the highest rated morning radio program in the New York City area. Michael's book, Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway, won the Marfield Prize for Arts Writing in 2015 and is widely considered to be the successor to William Goldman's celebrated 1967 book about Broadway, The Season. A graduate of Columbia University, Michael lives in the West Village. We are so happy to have him here today. The man who is the impetus for our podcast, Michael Riedel. Woo! Uh, I just, I wanted to let you know um, that when I was a kid, I started watching theater talk back in Maryland and I would stay up until one o'clock in the morning because that's when it would come on. (laughs) And, And my mom would, she'd come downstairs and she would be like, Ebony, it is after midnight. You need to go to bed. And I was like, no, mom, I have to watch theater talk. And she would let me, even though I was like a kid and should be in bed. <laughs> well, the funny thing about that, Ebony, was talk. So it started in New York in uh, the early 90s. And there was um, these uh, free cable stations. It was like the Manhattan Network cable station. I don't really understand what it was about. But somehow uh, my partner back then, um, Susan Haskins and I, we said, well, why don't we create a show about Broadway that's kind of like just the kind of fun, the gossipy, 
the um, uh, have the critics on, the columnists on to talk about what's really going on behind the scenes. Yeah. So when we started Theater Talk back in the early 90s, we had no money. I mean, we had, we had no money whatsoever. And we never had any money because it was always a nonprofit. So I never made a dime off the whole thing. But it was just kind of fun. But we would have to find these kind of scrungy, slightly sleazy little studios in Chelsea <laughs> to tape the thing. And I remember... Um, we shared a studio with, and back in the day, and you, you, Pamela, and you, uh, Ebony, are too young for this, but there used to be these phone sex ads on late night television <laughs> on the Manhattan Cable Network. And we would share the studio with the, um, shall we say, the, um, the performers <laughs> that would roll around on the beds in the studio with the phone cord and saying, you know, Give me a call, baby. <laughs> and I remember once uh, Susan Haskins, who was my co-creator of Theater Talk, she came in and there was some woman who was tangled up in a phone cord saying 997-58 for a good time, who was doing lines of coke next <gasps> And uh, she said, you have to get off this bed because we have Edward Albee, the author of <laughs> coming in in 10 minutes. And so somehow we managed to do a theater talk show with Edward Albee just right up against the bumper for the, uh, porn, the porn phone call. So it was uh, though I will say that based on your chapters about Edward Albee, I'm sure that he would have gotten a kick out of that. <laughs> oh, he would have loved it, yeah. Ed, I mean, Edward, Edward, Edward was a great friend of mine. I mean, yeah. I met him. I met Edward when I was uh, I was at Columbia, and he was teaching a class there. So this would have been about 1986 when he was really in the wilderness. Of course, you know he wrote mm -hmm. "Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf" and a "Delicate Balance," but his career had kind of been finished. Mm -hmm. And so he was taking jobs to make money, uh, teaching at places like Johns Hopkins and Columbia. And I was in love with this uh, girl, and she wanted to be an actress, and she took this class with one Edward Albee, who I'd never heard of him before. I, I really had, I was not a theater guy. Yeah. And I thought, well, if she's going to take the class, I want to take the class because, you know, I'd like to be around her. Mm -hmm. So I went to the library, the big old stacks at Columbia. And I took down, I went to, you know, Albee, A, went to the A, <laughs> Albee, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? No, I better read this because I have to audition to be in this class, to be with this girl I want to. Yeah. And I kid you not, guys, I sat, I sat down. I started reading Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I kept thinking, I've never read mm. like this before. Yeah. I sat there in the stacks of the Columbia Library, and I read the whole thing cover to cover. And I thought, oh, my God. This, these, these people, George and Martha, who... Mm. They want to kill each other, but they love each other at the same yeah. time. I thought, this is the most brilliant thing I've ever read. So I thought, oh, I have to meet this Mr. Edward Albee guy. So he said, you have to, I remember the poster on the bulletin board, you know, a long time ago, a bulletin board was, you have to have a monologue to audition for the class. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, what's a monologue? <laughs> so I went to the Columbia bookstore and I looked in the theater department and said, monologues. So I took down this Dylan Thomas monologue about some anthropological professor. 
And I thought, well, Dylan Thomas, never heard of him before. But he says <laughs> he's Welsh. I didn't even know what Welsh was, but I guess English. <laughs> I don't know. What, what the hell did I know? I'm a kid from upstate New York. I don't know anything, you know? <laughs> All I know is I want to sleep with a girl who's going to get in Edward Albee's class, and I want to be there too. So there you go. There you go. I thought, well, he's, I guess he's English or Welsh, whatever he is. So I remember going to audition for Edward Albee. This is 1987, 86, 87. And I do this ridiculous monologue with an English accent. All, all I want is a room somewhere. Oh, no. I remember Edward, Edward back in those days, he wore this leather jacket and he had that, you know, that gunslinger mustache that all, yeah. the, all the gay people on Christopher Street had in the 70s. And, like and he said, do that again, but lose the accent. <laughs> And I did it, and he cast me in the play. Wow! And we became kind of friendly over that for the years, and and I have to say, for my book, Singular Sensation: The Triumph of Broadway, the the chapter I'm the the most pleased with was the chapter on Edward Albee. Yeah, I knew him when he was cast out of the kingdom, but mm -hmm. nobody, nobody would give him the time. But this man who wrote Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah. Delicate Balance, The Zoo Story. I mean, some yeah. great plays of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. He was finished. He was over. And I got to be kind of friendly with him. And I would interview him from time to time when he had a new little off-Broadway play at the Daily News. I was a reporter back in those days. But nothing ruffled him. He was like, you know, Michael, he once said to me, he said, you know, they like you and then they don't. But mm, what was the quote from him? It was something about popularity and excellence and them not having a great relationship. Like that actually stood out to me quite a lot. Yeah. Because I, at the end, it's really easy, I think, to lose, you know, to fall from grace in this business. You know, one off spoken comment, you yeah. know, and then suddenly, you know, you can't you can't get a job anywhere. And it's unfortunate. Yeah, I know. I mean, he was cast out of the kingdom. But you have to understand with Edward Albee that he had this difficult issue with his mother, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, she never accepted his homosexuality. Yeah. yeah. And she turned him out of the house. And then she, she died in the late 80s, early 90s. And Edward wrote a play and he sent it to me. And it was called Three Tall Women. He said, you know, mm -hmm. what do you make of this? And this is a totally true story. I read the play and I called him and I said, I think this is your new Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm. Because he fundamentally understood what it was like to be brought up by an evil, wicked mother like that. But after mm -hmm. she died, after he took care of her to the end of her life, he told me, he said, you know, I learned something about her. I hated her my whole life. Mm. But at the end of her life, I found something new in me and that was pity. Yeah. Mm. And Three Tall Women is a great, great play about a monstrous woman. And yet there's something about her who's a survivor mm -hmm. of everything. And you kind of do like her at the end. There's another story that reminds me now of what we're just talking about with Elaine Stritch and having her be, you know, cast in as Claire and, you know, this alcoholic when she was an alcoholic and now right. she's recovered. And there was a lot of leeway that was given to her by at least one of the people involved, you know, because the, the backstory shows that, you know, she's actually doing a, a really incredibly brave thing right now by, you know, by kind of 
confronting her own monster um, and living through that. And I, that is really the case here where the backstory, there's always going to be some kind of backstory going through someone's life that you don't see. All you see is what they give you and what they give you is something that is objectionable. Right. Ultimately, that is what kind of makes you you know, want to say, go away. <laughs> well, but what happened with Elaine, and I was, I was very, very good friends with Elaine over the years. Yeah. And in a delicate balance, she, because Edward now had the resurgence of three tall women. Mm -hmm. So Lincoln Center rediscovered a delicate balance, which, which by the way, uh, you know, your listeners should read that play. It is a masterpiece. That right. absolute masterpiece of delicate balance. Yeah. And Elaine was playing Claire the alcoholic and the smoker. And Elaine had then given up alcohol and smoking. Right. right. But yet she had to play an alcoholic and the smoker. It's crazy. So that was just like, in, you guys know as performers, it was just like there was something in her mind. Mm -hmm. And she was going a little bit insane. Mm -hmm. And the actors who were with her, George Grizzard and Rosemary mm -hmm. Harris, they were like, what's going on with Elaine? This is kind of weird. But uh, Jerry Gutierrez, who directed it, understood what Elaine was fighting. Right. She was playing a character who had given up, who was doing all the things that she had given up. Mm -hmm. And so he cut her a lot of slack. Yeah. And I saw that performance. And I tell you, you will never see a performance like that. She had the pathos and the humor, and she could switch it on a dime. Amazing. Like but, you know, it was a little crazy backstage, and there was one moment where George, <laughs> he was, like, fed up with Elaine, and the curtain came down, and he slugged her. He slugged <laughs> her at the curtain. And she <laughs> ran into her dressing room, and she took out her curling iron, and she chased him around the backstage, trying to hit him, and he slugged her. The only reason A Delicate Balance, that great revival, did not go on was because Andre Bishop, who produced it with Lincoln Center, told me, he said, mm -hmm. Michael, the only time you were safe was when the curtain was up and they gave brilliant performances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But when the curtain came down, it was madness backstage. Oh, man. We could not go on with this. And he closed it. And he called Edward and he said, Edward, I'm sorry, but they're insane backstage. And Edward, who always floated above everything, just said, you know what? I'm perfectly fine with it. I've had my comeback. And that's all I care about. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. On our on our podcast, we talk a lot about the backstories of um, of flops. Right. And so, as we were reading through your book, um, I I have a lot of notes. And there there were several uh, flops in there that I wondered if you could expound a little bit on. One of them we did a whole episode on called Big. And so the part where you're talking about how they thought that um, Rent was going to be the new chess and Big was going to be the new Phantom. I just I, I didn't know. We, we knew that they thought it was going to be a big deal and it was a huge disappointment. But do you have any more insight on that on that backstory um, of Big and how that faltered? Well, yeah. So uh, I, I remember the 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 shows that were going to open that season, I think Victor Victoria with Julie mm -hmm. Andrews and big, which was based on the Tom Hanks movie. Right. And everybody thought those were going to be the, the big, big shows. And then out of nowhere, out of nowhere came this little off Broadway show called rent written by Jonathan Larson, who sadly, as you know, uh, died yeah. before he could ever yeah. see what he had uh, contributed to the American musical theater. Yeah. And, 
I interviewed Richard Maltby, who wrote Big with, um, um, uh, oh God, he was writing with um, John, um, uh, we blinked. We should remember too because we did the episode with, 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 with David Geyer. He wrote with David yeah. Geyer and um, um, other writers. Anyway, so Richard and David Geyer, they're doing this big show. It's going to be a huge show based on the famous Tom Hanks movie. and It's going to be great and wonderful. And then Richard is in Detroit where Big was trying out and it was not an easy tryout. I mean, it was uh, there were a lot of problems with that show. Yeah. And Richard picked up the New York Times and he read Ben Brantley's review of Jonathan Larson's Rent opening at uh, the New York Theater Workshop. And Richard said, that's it. What we're doing is not what the cultural what the culture wants anymore. We're doing this big old fashion Broadway show that's heartwarming. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, Ben Brantley in the New York Times is saying, this is going to shift the American musical theater. It's not going to be fantasy anymore. It's not going to be sweet and heartwarming. It's going to deal with the here and now, the nitty gritty of New York, people who are fighting AIDS, people who are fighting drug addiction, people yeah. who are fighting gentrification. And Richard just looked at his show and he said, I knew it was over. I, there was no way we could, could compete against rent. And, that's, and that is the fundamental change I try to get at in my book, uh, mm -hmm. Sensation, The Battle for Broadway, that you had in the 80s, the Cameron McIntosh, Andrew Lloyd Webber shows. You had yeah. Cats and Phantom and Les Mis and Miss Saigon. And then you get up to Sunset Boulevard, Andrew Lloyd Webber's biggest show of all time, $14 mm -hmm. million. Which, by the way, is a show I love and has a great score. I mean, As If We Never yeah. Said Goodbye is one of the great musical theater songs ever written. With One Look is a beautiful song. Gorgeous. But it was just, it was so heavy. It was so big. We were in the air yeah. of every special effects, everything. Yeah. People want to go to Broadway for the amount of money they're paying, which, by the way, was $65 back in those days. <laughs> if only. Yeah. That balcony, the rear now. Is like a 200 bucks for the rear balcony. It's insane. But anyway, but remember, it was, it was like everything had to be big and big and huge. And I remember going to the opening night of Sunset Boulevard at the Minskoff Theater, I think it was. And I thought, okay, the score is beautiful, but this is a small show. This is an intimate show. It's Norma Desmond, mm -hmm. Joe Gillis, and the butler. It's yeah. a intimate show. And yet all of these special effects with a mansion flying, yeah. all of this was laden onto it, and it felt heavy. And Andrew wins the Tony Award in 1995, I think it was, mm -hmm. because the only competition was Smokey Joe's Cafe. Right which was the review. So it had right. Andrew's book and he wins score and he wins best musical. Yeah. At the same time, at the height of Andrew Lloyd Webber's powers, there was this kid none of us had ever heard of before, Jonathan Larson, toiling away for years, who was at the end of his rope, mm -hmm. who did not know how he was going to make a living in the city mm. writing Rent. And mm -hmm. the year after that, Andrew Lloyd Webber presents the Tony Award posthumously to Jonathan Larson, who did not live to see what Rent did and changed everything on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. That that was such an interesting part of the book because it ended up being Rent and Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk. And yeah. I was just like, <laughs> I, I just love hearing and seeing how things turn out so differently from what people expect and that yeah. 
you know, people who normally are not the ones that people would look to to be the juggernaut can be. And these are young people toiling away, unknown, just coming up, and then they they end up being, um, yeah, you know, but, this but, next but, generation. But, but but Ebony, that's the that's the whole point of loving the theater. Yeah, because you have to go back. You know, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber were kids when they wrote Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. Which was mm -hmm. the, you know, one of the first oh, rock Amazing. Yeah. So, I love you know, that show. I, I mean, the great thing about covering the theater, writing about Broadway all these years is if you do the show that you think is going to be a hit. All right. Let's say I have, I've got Bono and The Edge. <laughs> score. Spider-Man, which is the biggest franchise in the history of movies. And I've got Julie Taymor. Mm-hmm who is the director of The Lion King. It cannot fail. Mm -hmm. And yet it was a $150 million flop. Mm -hmm. Now, if I say to you, all right, um, I'm going to adapt this 1,000-page novel about a guy who steals some bread. <laughs> by the way, the novel's in French, I'm going to make that into a musical. You'd say, mm -hmm. are you out of your mind? And that musical, of course, was Les Miserables. Which is well, I think, though, at the end of the day, a good story is a good story is a good story. Right. And we talk about this a lot because we did a actually a two-parter about Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark <laughs> because it was just so much to talk about. What we talk about is, though, you know, putting so much money and so much emphasis on everything else besides the story. And that's where you fall into trouble because you're not actively telling the story anymore. You're, you're showing people this, the special effects. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think fundamentally what makes a great musical is um, a, a good story wedded to a great score that has melodies. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's underappreciated the importance of melody. And this is why I, I, you know, I will always defend Andrew Lloyd Webber. You sure. Know? You, you can, I remember Cy Coleman, the great old composer of Sweet Charity and Barnum said to me once, I remember I was kind of slagging off on Andrew Lloyd Webber back when Cy was alive. And he said, Michael, there is not one of us, one of us composers who would give his right eye to not have written Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Those six notes, and then they grab you and they yeah. bring you in. It's true. And I mean, all the great composers. And I also think Stephen Sondheim is mm -hmm. a yes. melodist. People say, oh, Stephen, he's too cold. He's too aloof. His melodies are too complicated. about every day a little death mm -hmm. in the parlor, in the bedroom. Beautiful, lilting, gorgeous melody. You know, um, nothing's going to harm you. Yeah. Not well, I'm around. It's a beautiful melody. Yeah. yeah. And Andrew Lloyd Webber writes those gorgeous melodies. My only concern with the kids writing today, to be honest with you, um, I can't really sing a lot of songs from Next to Normal or even Dear Evan Hansen. I know there's that tap, tap, I'm tapping on the mm -hmm. tap, tap, tap. Yeah, waving through the window. <laughs> Waiting with my cast on. <laughs> I know, it's not. It's not the same thing as. Isn't it rich? Yeah. Are we a pair? 
I mean, there's no doubt that the melody has definitely changed, I think, because you do have so many younger people coming up that, you know, they want to hear what they listened to growing up. So it's, you know, you do have like a lot of more, excuse me, contemporary style. Um, But there's also no doubt. I but mean, I, yeah, totally. But I will also say, because like Dear Evan Hansen, if you just if you take away the riff, if you if you lower the key and slow it down a little bit, you still have that melody that you can that you go home singing or humming. And, you know, it still hits a chord within you, I think, at least. Yeah. It could be. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm 55 years old. So, um, you know, I'm past my <laughs> sell by date. Not to listen to anything I have to say, but I don't. I don't really find. Also, I, I, I'm a little upset with the lyrics today. I mean, you know, I'm tap, tap, tapping on the window, looking outside. (laughs) It seems to me it's just kind of obvious. It's, it's just sort of, it's literal. Whereas something that Stephen Sondheim does about two people who should be together but can't, Mm. or it's about clowns. Isn't it rich? Me here at last on the ground. You in? midair yeah there's a kind of poetry there that's absolutely from lyric writing today i think i would agree with that stephen sondheim is uh, i mean he's the juggernaut if you really consider lyricist he's amazing yeah but even jonathan larson i mean you know uh, Mm -hmm. i mean how how could you possibly conceive of a lyric five hundred twenty five thousand six hundred minutes 525,000 moments to live. How do you yeah. do that number? I mean, how, <laughs> that's, that's not like I'm rapping on the window. That's right. I know, yeah. it's true. It's 525,600 minutes. I mean, that's yeah. something that a true genius does yeah. work with. And, and also back to what you said about melody, because people, the first few notes of Seasons of Love, and everybody's like, oh, they chord. know exactly chord. what's about to happen. Chord, chord, chord. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How do, you, how do you measure a lyric in life? In daylight, in cups of coffee. I mean, yeah. who, who can come up with that? In cups of coffee. It's like, it's not, it's not like, oh, I'm rapping on the window. I want to begin. Oh, let me in with my cast on. I mean, like you're a little obsessed with Dear Evan Hansen or Mr. Riedel. Well, I'd like, listen, I love the guys who wrote it, but I'm not not a big fan of Dear Evan Hansen. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply but but work writing should be about things that you can't even imagine. Yeah. Metaphors. Completely. Thought-provoking. Absolutely. That makes you think on a completely different level than just what's right there in front of you. Mm -hmm. I think that's super important. I I think that is why, ultimately, I love musical theater so much, is because it is a fantasy you can escape into. You can listen to those words, and it makes you feel on a level that just talking about your feelings doesn't take you. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. it, it, it catches your breath for a moment, you know. Yeah. How do you measure a life in cups of coffee? I mean, what a wonderful phrase. How much coffee have we all 
been drinking back in those days. He caught it. He <laughs> caught our lives. Yeah, yeah he did. He did. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to also ask you about uh, a couple more flops. <laughs> <laughs> we want the Charlie, you are. You're, you're rough. <laughs> You want, you want to know the bad news? We, we, what, that, yeah, our the reason why we love talking about flops so much. Well, actually, we, you started this. I have to tell you, <laughs> Mr. Riedel, um, because the whole podcast started because of Rebecca and that backstory. Oh, right. <laughs> right. right. So uh, is there anything more than like, of course, we read the article and then um, we know people who uh, were involved in the in the cast. Um, but and then we've kept up and it just feels like every time we read another news article, the story takes an unexpected turn that you just could never have written in a book because somebody would have told you that you were totally crazy. Yeah. We were talking before we started looking at your apartment when you got up to leave. <laughs> we were talking about Rebecca, which was hugely informative to us even starting this podcast in the first place. I yeah. had been, I had auditioned for it and been called back for it and made it to the almost and then didn't quite make it further. But I also had friends that were doing it. Ebony and I sat down for pizza one day in Dumbo and I was telling her about it. And I was like, you know, what's really cool is like this whole scandal, you know, be behind the scenes of it all with the angel investor suddenly, you know, not actually being a real person and disappearing. And then, the, you know, so everything that kind of went on and she was like, well, that's an amazing podcast idea. So that's kind of what started. We'd mm -hmm. love to hear if you've got any little stories about Rebecca that you can think of that might wet our appetites. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember, um, so I knew Ben Sprecher, who was the producer of Rebecca, mm -hmm. a total sleazeball, I always thought. <laughs> well, now we well, found out that he truly is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he was arrested for child porn at one point. Yeah, that's right. But I remember, I think I was, I had a vacation and I was, I was traveling around somewhere in Europe visiting some friends. And I was kind of keeping tabs on stuff. And there was a thing about Rebecca, the money wasn't there, this and the other thing. I thought, well, this will be something I should dig into. So come back to New York. And I'm a little behind the curve on this story. I think the New York Times was ahead of it on me. But I had to catch up. And I called my friend uh, Mark Thibodeau, who was mm -hmm. the press agent. Mm-hmm. I said, Mark, you know, bring me up to speed. What's going on? He said, Michael, this is just beyond belief. I mean, Ben is raising money from people who don't exist and who are corrupt. And I said, well, all right, so give me a sense of this. And he said, okay. He's raised money from this guy named, I think his name was Mark Hotton. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, um, Mark said, I did a Google search on it, and the guy was indicted for fraud and went to jail. And then when I brought that up with Ben Sprecher, the producer of Rebecca, Ben said, don't ask any more questions. I thought, oh, this is weird. Mm -hmm. So I'm very close to the Schuberts, uh, Phil Smith and uh, Bob Wankel, who run the company. And I remember reading in the Times that the Schuberts were kind of defending Ben Sprecher because they've done business with him. They were friends and Mark was too, too scared to really go to the Schuberts and say what he knew. 
Yeah. So I went to them. I went up to their offices and I said uh, to Phil Smith and Bob Wankel, who were running the company then, I said, do you guys know who you were in business with? Have you really researched this? And they were like, well, we don't know. And I said, well, here's what I know. This address that they've given for some investor in Australia who's going to save it, that address is a park bench in a park in Melbourne. So nobody lives there. Whoa, I didn't know that part. <laughs> so what are you guys getting into? And they, oh, we'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. I, um, I, I said, I remember saying to Schubert, I said, guys, I'm just telling you, there's something fishy and smells about this. Mm -hmm. I'm an old newspaper columnist. Yeah. I, know, I know when something is not quite right. Do you think about this. that Ben Sprecher had more knowledge about this than he claimed? Ben Sprecher knew exactly what was going on okay, and he was desperate to keep the thing going. Cause you have to remember, and the way Broadway financing works is people give you money. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can keep telling them the show is going to go up, you yeah. get the money. Yeah. Once you tell them the show has to close, you have to give them the money back. And Ben right. Sprecher did not have the money to give that money back. Right. He was a desperate man. So he had to keep the scam going. And then I remember this thing story broke about somebody who had emailed. There was a producer that Ben found in Florida, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. who was going to come forward and give him all the money. Right. Yeah, an angel. Yeah. An angel who was going to save the whole show. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is weird. So I called my friend Mark Thibodeau, who was the publicist on the show. And I said, Mark, what is going on here? I mean, the guy was going to give the money. Then he got an anonymous email saying that the whole thing was corrupt. Don't give him the email. And Mark said to me, can I be honest with you? I said, yes. He said, I'm the person who sent the email because this whole thing is a fraud. Mm -hmm. And Mark had sent it from a Starbucks. And I said to Mark, I said, Mark, um, you need to be be in contact with a lawyer because even though you sent it from a Starbucks, they will find out who's yeah. in some way. That's right. And I thought, Mark, you're doing the right thing because you know that Ben is a skeevy, corrupt, horrible person. You know, this whole thing is a fraud. Mm. You are trying to be the whistleblower, but as right. the whistleblower, they're going to come down on you. Yeah. Right. right. And so then I put Mark in touch with a very famous lawyer, friend of mine here in New York who kind of helped him navigate through everything. And Mark got sued and the whole thing fell apart, but I was there. It was a great day in the courtroom when Ben Sprecher, that sleazeball, <laughs> person, and he thought he thought he was gonna win that. He thought he was mm. gonna win it. And then the jury, cause Mark is a great guy, Mark Thibodeau. And the jury rolled that, um, Mark did the right thing by telling that investor, don't get involved in this corrupt operation. Mm -hmm. And they, Ben was suing for like five or $6 million. And I think they gave him $10,000 that Mark's insurance covered. Yeah. I remember sitting in the courtroom, looking at old slimy old Ben Sprecher. <laughs> you are finished. Good luck. What? I, I don't remember. Was he doing my, many shows before then, Ben? 
he'd done a few shows here and there. They were all flops. I and mean, mm-hmm. the guy has no taste. He's a totally corrupt, horrible individual. And he's getting what he deserved. But he did, you know, honestly, he had the Schubert's wrapped around his little finger at one point. Mm-hmm. I kind of liked him. I mean, like all these slimy characters in this business, they sometimes put on a good show for the gullible. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way as Garth Rubinsky has done in my book, yeah. sensation. I mean, Garth Rubinsky was, he was the king of the world. Mm-hmm. He had live event. He created Ragtime and Kiss yep. of Spider Woman and uh, Showboat, the revival. Mm-hmm. And it was the greatest thing of all time. He was going to make gazillions of dollars for all of his investors. And he all a Ponzi scheme. Total fraud. And yeah. Total phony. But the nose, my nose, never lies. It never <laughs> well, I'll tell you why, guys. It never lies. Yeah. Because you have to understand the fundamental economics of Broadway, okay? Mm-hmm. You invest in a show and it costs $5 million. That's your capitalization. Well, then you have to break down what are your running costs each, each week, mm-hmm. right? So let's say your costs are $250,000 each week just to keep the thing afloat. Now, if you make $350,000, $350,000 over that week, that's $100,000 profit. If you right. make $700,000, that's a lot of profit. That profit each week goes back to reducing the capitalization cost. But if you don't make that each week, if you fall below that weekly cost that you pay the actors and the stagehands and the theater owners, mm-hmm. if you fall, fall below that, you're never going to return your $5 million investment. And right. I'm thinking with Garth Rubinsky, I thought, you know, Showboat, great show, brilliantly directed by Hal Prince, fabulous, and yet it's so expensive. Mm-hmm. 10 million bucks laid out on the line, and now mm-hmm. your weekly running costs are $600,000. You got to be selling eight hundred thousand dollars worth of tickets, yeah, to return your initial investment in two years. Mm-hmm. Never makes sense of Garth Rubinsky's economics. And at the end of the day, and I was one of the few reporters who really questioned what he was doing. At the end of the day, everything was phony. He kept two sets of books. Yeah, he showed all of his investors. I'm making millions of dollars on this show. And these shows are great. And the secret set of books showed we're not making that much money. We're losing money. We're losing I mean, money. obviously he did end up getting his comeuppance, but how do you think he made it for so long without someone, you know, besides yourself going, something stinks here? I will quote my old friend, Fred Ebb. How can they see with sequins in their eyes? Okay, perfect. <laughs> All you have to do, showbiz, showbiz. You can have the smartest people in the world, but when they get involved in showbiz, they're like, oh my God, I love it. I yeah. love the smoke and mirrors. I love the excitement. I love the glamour. And Garth was able to convince everybody, see how what I'm doing, see what I'm doing, see these great shows. Come to my opening at parties, my my lavish parties, see how great this is. Mm-hmm. You know, you won't even look. That part when you said he was the private jets to like pick people up for the day. And I thought, what Broadway producer has that kind of money? That was bananas. Nobody that's above the board. <laughs> not, not unless you've been doing Hamilton <laughs> or phantom right but, but 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 ebony you have to understand the whole thing is you create the perception right that you have this wealth and this power if i want you and he did this with richard Maltby, 
Richard Maltby, uh, who wrote uh, The Great uh, Closer Than Ever, a show that I really love. Me too, me show. too. I love that show. But Richard, he brought in to do Fosse. And, you know, Richard is on vacation in Aspen with his wife. And Garth says, I want you to meet, he calls him and he says, I want you to meet Anne Ranking. She's coming in to help on Fosse. And Richard says, uh, okay, I'll come back, you know, next week from my vacation. He says, Garth says, no, I want you here uh, tomorrow. And Richard's like, well, I'm on a vacation. He says, don't worry. I'm sending the plane and the helicopter and the limousines. And he finds Richard from Aspen to come to New York. And Richard has a 45-minute meeting with Anne Ranking about Fosse. And then Richard gets back in the limo, into the private plane, mm-hmm. back to Aspen. And that was the kind of thing that Garth did. But Garth, Garth's whole Garth's whole showbiz quality was, I will show you that I can do anything that I want to do. Mm-hmm. If I can do it, you will believe in me. Huh. <laughs> the master manipulator. Yeah. Well, I mean, for a while until at the end of the day, you know, when you uh, opened up the hood of the car and you saw there's no engine here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end. Oh, man. Oh, Lord. Well, it is uh, 45 minutes and you, um, we, that's what we uh, agreed on. So I don't want to take up okay, too much more of your time. <laughs> All right. We want to keep going. We'll keep going. We got more questions. Oh, <laughs> we have very know. healthy lungs. Okay. <laughs> I will say, though, I will say, you know, um, it really does hurt me because um, mm. I love Broadway so much as you guys do. And yeah. this book was conceived before the pandemic. Yeah. And you know, I wrote a first book called Razzle Dazzle, the Battle yeah. of Broadway, which was about how, you know, a handful of people stuck by Broadway in the 60s and 70s when the city was falling apart and Times mm-hmm. Square was sleazy and mm-hmm. Schubert organization was bankrupt. And it was about a lot of people like the Schuberts and the Nederlanders and Michael Bennett and um, um, Peter Schaffer, who did Equus, who just stuck by Broadway and gave it s- some anchors to hold on. And then for me, the 90s, which I covered, Mm -hmm. was a time of when Broadway was really exploding. Mm -hmm. There's shows like Rent and Chicago and The Lion King, um, Angels in America. They became part of the mainstream popular culture of America again, in a way they had not been in a long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this book was written to end with September 11th, which... You know, yeah. it was it was an existential crisis because, you know, I live in the West Village and I could look out my window and I could see the Twin Towers every morning. Mm-hmm. And I got up and I made my coffee and I saw a gash in the North Tower. And I thought, what the, what the heck is that? The smoke was coming out. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, it's like, a, I guess a small plane has hit the tower and... I remember thinking this will be the um, the front page of the New York Post tomorrow, my paper mm-hmm. then. And then I, you know, I said, well, terrible, awful, this is weird. But I took a shower and I came back and then I saw another plane hit the South Tower. I thought, oh, my God, life has changed. Yeah. And you cannot imagine what it was like back then because I called Jerry Schoenfeld, who was running the Schuberts that morning. He said, Michael, we don't know what to do. Because Times Square was the next terrorist target. 
Mm -hmm. I remember that. And also uh, there was a sense that, because this happened in Moscow, that terrorists took over a theater and held people hostage Mm -hmm. in the theater and killed 200 people. Yeah. There were fears that if you go to a Broadway show, there might be terrorists. We didn't know. Yeah. Take over a theater and shoot you up. Right. 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 But Rudy Giuliani, when he was sane, (laughs) but as I write in my book, Rudy Giuliani, when he was sane, he, he was reading a biography of Winston Churchill. And when the Nazis were bombing the crap out of London, Churchill said, I want the ballet, I want the opera, and I want the theaters to go on Mm. because I will not allow the Germans to bring us to our knees. Mm -hmm. And Giuliani felt that. And he said, I I have to show the world that New York is still open, that we will not be brought to our knees. And he called the producers of Broadway and he said, I want your shows open on Thursday night. That is two days, two days. Ebony and Pamela, after what we thought was, what the hell is going to happen in this city? Yeah. And I interviewed Matthew Broderick, and Matthew said to me, he rode his bike up to the producers. He was the star of the producers, which which was the biggest show then. Mm-hmm. He said, I, he said I was scared. I mean, I didn't know. I mean, you know, is there going to be a bomb in yeah. where? But he said we went and we did the show. And I was there for this. I was with Ann Bancroft and Mel Brooks at the back of the house. Wow. Maybe half full. And it was the hottest show the producers at the time then. And then at the end of the show, they sang God Bless America. And you thought life will go on. Yeah. <laughs> the city will survive. Whether it can survive this pandemic, we shall see. But I'm optimistic and hopeful. Yeah. We are too. We are too. I mean, we have discussed this at length. It's one of those things where it will come back, but we think that it's going to be severely changed and that might not necessarily be a bad thing. What do you think about that? It's going to be, it has to come back and you have to get rid of these obscene premium prices. Yes. Mm -hmm. You have to get rid of the, I mean, Broadway, frankly, got too gritty and too Mm -hmm. much and they were we're only for the 1% and we- Yeah, well, it's prohibitively expensive. It's almost like I'm being punished. <laughs> and that's when I can't, you know, it's like, go to your room. You can't see that Broadway show. <laughs> I mean, you know, this drives me crazy. I, yeah. I know all the producers, they've made a ton of money, but there was a point in time where they were like, you know, Michael, if we can get the biggest price we can get, we will get it. So, you know what? And just you you kill the theater though if you say to yep. people you can't afford us and we're just going to cater to the one percent so yeah. fuck you we don't mm-hmm. well you know the fuck you is the michael bennett who came from buffalo right. New York with no money yeah. with right. no money at all who could live in this city and then created a chorus line and dream girls all right you know uh, the, tommy toon who came from texas with nothing and did nine and grand hotel if you just want to make it for the 1%, you're going to have the most boring theater right. that totally. you can possibly imagine. That's right. Well, Jonathan Larson, Lin-Manuel oh, Miranda. Man. Like, listen. Well, Lynn, the thing about Lynn, Lynn had a pretty comfortable life. <laughs> Jonathan, by himself. Jonathan like, was working full-time job while trying yeah. to write that in the first place. So, yeah, definitely. But once, you say, once you say to kids who want to be in the theater, and let's face it, we love off-Broadway. We love the theater around the country. But nothing really exciting happens until you're on Broadway. 
Yeah. And that is fundamentally where things take off. Yeah. Yeah. But to say that, you know, say to people that Broadway is only, you know, we want to charge a thousand bucks for the balcony of Hamilton. You got to pay $800. That is obscene. Yeah. That is ridiculous. Listen, I don't wish COVID on any of us. I really do right. not. I mean, I've known some friends who've died of it. So. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. But the only thing that comes out of it is if you can just restructure the economics right. of Broadway so the theater can be accessible yeah. to people who have nothing. I mean, I came to the right. city with with no money as a kid going to Columbia, but I was able to, you know, buy a 10 or $15 ticket to see some of the shows on Broadway. Yeah. Fall in love with Broadway. Who is the writer of slave play, Ebony? Uh, Jeremy O'Harris. Jeremy O'Harris. He did a TikTok that I watched the other day <laughs> that was, it was a letter that was written to him or a video maybe that was, that was sent to him by a little black boy from Harlem mm -hmm. who said, I really want to see your play. I've read it. And I really want to see it. And like then Jeremy, you know, cut back into the video and he said, those are the people that I'm writing my shows for. And those are the people who have the hardest time coming to see my shows. Yeah. Yeah. And that is really it's such a detriment to this business to well, to like just theater in general, to the, right. the idea of theater. I grew up in central Illinois. Yeah, as far away from Broadway as you could possibly get. But I had such this love affair with musical theater and Broadway that I would go to the store, the music store, when you could actually buy music in a store. <laughs> and I would read through all the little librettos on the back of the CDs of the new, quote unquote, new CDs that were there. And like, I would read the story and be like, yeah, I really like that. So like Steel Pier was one of those that I read the back and I was like, what a great idea for a show. And obviously it didn't hit the market very well. But like, that's what, pulled me into there was the stories it was these ideas that were coming to fruition through the the art of music and theater and dancing and it was so exciting and romantic and wonderful and and just you know like nobody can experience that because you can't afford to get a ticket and the people that can experience it don't really have the same level of appreciation for it <laughs> i'm off my soapbox now <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll leave you guys because I got to run, but we're yeah. one story that uh, is from my book, Razzle Dazzle, The Battle mm. for Broadway, my first book before Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway. <laughs> um, so my old friend, Jimmy Niederlander, who owned all the Niederlander theaters there, mm. Jimmy died about seven or eight years ago now. He was a great guy. I loved him. I, I used to go every Wednesday, I would go to his office and we would have... Um, we would have pastrami sandwiches and he would tell me about his whole life and how he came to uh, build up his theater chain. And I said, Jimmy, tell me about the time that, um, how did you find that great show in 1981, Lena Horne, the lady in her music. And Jimmy said, well, and he used to talk like this. He would say, you know, well, I knew Lena, you know, <laughs> in the clubs back in the day. And then, and she came up to my office one night and she said, Jimmy, Jimmy, I want to do one last thing before I go. I've never played Broadway and I'd like to play Broadway. Hmm. And Jimmy was like, Lita, you got the Niederlander Theater for two weeks. Put her right in. And those two weeks turned out to be two years. Oh, amazing. <laughs> and Nina Horn came back in a gigantic way. Yeah. It was just because guys like Jimmy Niederlander just, he loved Lena Horne. He thought, you mm -hmm. want a theater? You got the theater. Awesome. And that was how 
it used to be done back then. And I do hope that when we get rid of this COVID, it won't be so calculating. It won't yeah. be, oh, we have to do this corporate show, this famous movie title. We have to do this, oh, it's based on this famous novel. It's based on this famous movie. I just would like to go back to the time when Lena Horne goes into Jimmy Neal. <laughs> Jimmy, I'd like to do one more show before I go. And Jimmy says, Lena, you got the needle in <laughs> for two months. I mean, that's the yeah. way the theater, yeah. that's the way the theater should work. Yep. Agreed. Oh, I love it. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much yeah. for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. We loved the book. We loved it. And yeah. um, we're, we're excited for it to come out. Uh, supposed to be tomorrow, right? The 10th. Yep, it is. Yep. And yep. that singular awesome. sensation, the triumph of Broadway. Yep. Yep. Well, I only hope it does it. it does as well as Lena Horn, the lady. And <laughs> which, by the way, if you guys have not heard that CD, that is the if you have not heard Lena Horn singing the Lena Horn, the lady in music, that is one of the great things on Broadway. Okay. Oh, I'll have to look it up. Oh, yeah. you gotta you gotta hear that. Yeah, most definitely. Thank you so much. It was such such an amazing time speaking with you. Okay. We love hearing your stories. A great pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, and have a great rest of your week. Thank and good you. luck on, on Singular Sensation. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Theater Geeks Anonymous. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TGABWAY and on Facebook at Theater Geeks Anonymous. And if you want to tell us how much you love us or you have a great story about one of the shows we've talked about, drop us a note at TGABWAY at gmail.com. Until, Until next time, time geeks. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.